Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Lynn Lindbergh. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to me. Good evening to you, Pete. Uh, Mighty Pete, that is such an honor to be here and meet you. I feel like I've already made a new friend. There you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So Lynn, tell us, who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? Ah, I am Lynn Lindbergh. I am uh, right now in the Seattle area, Seattle, Washington. So which has made the news a little bit, just a little bit the last few years or last year. Um, And what do I do today? I do something very different than what I used to do is... I'm a podcaster and uh, my main business is Couch to Active. So I help people get from sedentary to active. But when I say that, what the stereotypes come up in people's minds is not at all what this is. This is like for people who have chronic illness, who just really, really struggle to get to anything, any fitness class, anything, people who are blind or visually impaired. And I help them make that bridge from the just very beginnings um, to being able to be more active. It's a pretty amazing space to play in. I'm going to ask something bleeding obvious, but why get active? Why? Because <laughs> your life depends on it. Uh, yeah, blatantly obvious. So many reasons, uh, just so many things about, you know, stress and dopamine and pretty much uh, being active is the one thing you can do that will help your health that is free and has no ill side effects, but it's the most underused uh, thing that we have. And especially if you are caught in a chronic illness that really keeps you in bed most of the day, it's even more important for you to be active, but the barriers you have to get there are so sometimes just insurmountable. And so I'm a safe place to be able to to make those those, uh, successes become a reality. Oh, wow. Can yeah. I ask why? Why the chronic illness space? Mm. Is that was that your question? Yeah. yeah. Why the chronic illness space? That is actually a really great uh, question. I originally developed Couch to Active out of my own frustration of being in corporate. I was a corporate consultant for twenty years. Worked for Microsoft, Boeing, AOL. Um, you know, a bunch of different Praxair industrial gases, people probably, I don't know, it's everywhere on the globe. And I was really, really, really frustrated at what was normal, where I would have these clients I'd work for, and I would travel and literally have zero time to exercise. And if I did, I was like a weirdo, a freak, like, what do you do? What are y'all being so healthy for, you know, over in the Seattle area? And it really frustrated me because I thought, oh my gosh, our physical and mental health depends on this. Yet what's fashionable, what we do, what's considered a good employee over here is not. So that's where it originally came from. Uh, But in the process in my 40s, 
I developed uh, several chronic illnesses myself because of trauma in my life, because of working too hard. And, um, and so a lot of my podcasting and my talking about the struggle to exercise was around chronic illness. And then I just started playing more and more in that area and realized, oh, wow, we have this huge underserved group that just feels marginalized, feels like they're, well, what uh, their words, I feel fat, ugly, and out of shape, you know, and it's, it's just a really, really sad, hard place to be. And there really isn't um, any place that's, um, can really serve them really well. So that's really where that came from. Yeah. Um, why, why are they fat, ugly, and out of shape? Oh, 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 how long you got, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> a long time, but let's not go too far. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so culture, okay. social media, the news, Instagram, you know, especially... I used to say especially women because, you know, my generation, magazines, TV ads, it was all about, you know, the skinny, beautiful woman who fits in this certain, you know, body type. We all know that. We 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 know that like way too well. Social media enters the picture and now we're actually seeing this uh, what we call body image or, uh, you know, comparing yourself to others becoming an even bigger thing for men too because men are becoming more exposed to this and more self-conscious and more aware. And to make it even worse, you have all these uh, fitness influencers who and models who post all these beautiful Instagram photos like, la da I'm so beautiful, look at me and my wonderful life. And what people don't know is a lot of these are just completely fake. And um, the, my first big dose of this was teaching at a pro sports club here in Bellevue, Washington. That was a, this amazing sports facility where they actually train professionals. They actually train people who went on to the Olympics. They train people who actually won the bodybuilding contests. And all those people do not look like their pictures in the magazines. None of them. They don't. <laughs> And these are our most top elite, beautiful people. And then I went to a fitness convention of fitness influencers, 200 fitness influencers. And my gosh, Pete, I had a hard time connecting the people I were meet, I was meeting in real life with the people that I saw on their social media profiles before I got there. I was like, oh my gosh, you're that person online? I mean, it was just just ridiculous how much photoshopping, how much getting the perfect angle, how much, you know, everyone just puts their best face forward on social. And so when you see that and you do what we call doom scrolling, right? You just scroll, scroll, scroll. It's, then you just end up getting brainwashed thinking everybody else is way better than you. And so, um, yeah, that's a really long answer to a question we kind of already know the answer to. It's everywhere. No, it's true, isn't it? I mean, there's, there, there is so much and it's vice versa, though, isn't it? I mean, almost the more you see it online, this perfectionism that actually it just it switch you off. It just leaves you desperate and going, well, listen, I can't achieve. And yep. just the, gap, the gap is so big. So why bother? And you give up. 
And, mm. and yeah, and when it comes to exercise, especially with chronic illness, a lot of folks with chronic illness, I mean, they are celebrating if they get a shower every third day, you know, mm. <laughs> or if they get to run some errands or actually cook dinner for their family, that's a celebration. So the idea of putting a workout in on top of that, you know, that's just, it's just like, oh, okay, take me to my painful place and poke me again. You know, it's just a hard, hard place to go. Um, so they do, you give up, they tend to give up or tend to just stay in frustration and think maybe someday when I feel better, I'll exercise and that day never comes. Yeah. Oh, fun, fun. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Tell me, what does fire in the belly mean to you? Fire in the belly. I mm. like that title that you have there, fire in the belly. I'm thinking it's really about what motivates you, what gets you excited. And I think that could be positive or negative when I think of other people. Um, <laughs> but for myself, I think about what motivates me in a positive way to become a better person. And what is that for you? For me, I would say a few different things. Uh, family, being a, being a good mom, being a good example, um, being able to be a provider. Uh, for my family, that's I was single mom 10 years. And that was a real big piece for me to be able to provide for my son when I was single mom. And, um, and then just being a great human who contributes to humanity and does what I can to be the person that makes the world a better place. Um, that's really what fires me up. And then also, uh, with my uh, chronic illnesses, I had had definitely some fire in the belly about figuring those out so my body can keep up with my spirit. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You, you mentioned that you did the, the corporate thing. How long were you embedded in corporate? Uh, over 20 years. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, co yeah. Consulting. And I had one gig where I, uh, gig we call them, <laughs> where, where it was a three month every quarter. Uh, it was renewed. And at the end of every quarter, I didn't necessarily know if I was going to be hired back for the next quarter. Um, and they kept renewing my contract every quarter for five years. And um, sometimes I'd show up to work and I'd have my security badge and it's a new quarter. And I go up, boop. Oh, light turns green. All right. I'm still good. Going into work today. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a lot of years. So. Uh, working as a mostly project manager, management capacity. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly conducive to a, uh, a lower stress, you know, sort of being comfortable with your environment type of a snow. I, I recognize it, I did it myself. So, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. It's that sort of does my past work and am I still welcome in the building? Hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. But you know, at that time, I mean, I think that was around 2011, that story about does my past still work? And that was um, that was when the United States, anyway, we had a huge economic downturn then, and tons of people were out of work, and and even where I was, I was working for uh, T-Mobile, which is one of our wireless uh, phone carriers, and they were laying off employees left and right, um, but keeping the temporary people like myself because we'd be easy to get rid of whenever they wanted to. Um, and so it was just a, it was a weird thing to be in a situation where the business strategy was to let go of the full-time employees and keep, keep people like me around. And then I was really strategic. I, 
I took every grunt work job I could find. I mean, I was a senior project manager, but I listened. And when I heard there was some project or report or something that I knew would be just a total pain to do and just grunt work that everyone would hate, I'm like, but it was important. I said, I'll do that. (laughs) So then when the end of the quarter would come, and they'd say, oh, are we going to let you go or not? They'd ask me, what are you doing? And then they, you could see it in their eyes. They're like, ooh, well, I don't want to do that. Ugh, so let's keep you around. <laughs> so that's, uh, I think, a big piece of what kept me on for quite a while. Yeah. So, so do the jobs that no one else wants to do. Yep. Be willing to do the grunt work. Yep. Is there an element of people pleasing there too? Or is it was it just purely being strategic? No, I think people, well, I think people pleasing and serving your customers well, right? Because if you just have the people pleasing without thinking strategically about what's best for your customer, that that can throw you off. But um, but if you're strategic and on your customer side, that essentially becomes customer pleasing, right? You know, even if it's a tough message you have to give, if that give message helps the customer in the long run, um, then, then it becomes a good thing. Yeah. How, did you find it was a big people pleaser thing too for you? Uh, it could be. I mean, you, the problem, the best way I always describe the role is you're always firefighting. So you always had to be on your A game, <laughs> you know, especially when you go on project to project. It's not like the normal, yeah, the normal job, you get cycles, you get busy times and that's fine. Then you get quiet times. But when you're consulting, it's kind of going, right, the building's on fire. We need you, need you, need you now. And then the building's not on fire. Get out of the building. What are you doing in the building? Go somewhere else. Get... <laughs> oh, oh! not only is that, the building's not on fire anymore. So please go away. But we're going to stay back and have our award ceremony for ourselves and each other. <laughs> yeah. And and I had twice, two, two gigs where I showed up just for a meet and greet with the intention of coming back a couple days later to start. And that meet and greet turned into all day of meeting and like, boom, I was in. So, yep, because of the firefighting thing. So, yeah, lots of years of uh, managing high stress, um, high stakes environments. Because by the time a company needs a consultant, they have a problem that they haven't been able to solve themselves that's causing pain. And so that's why you're there is um, to deal with something that's already an issue. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah, I said after 10 years, it was pretty much another two years and I was straight jacket. That was, yeah, I, did, I, I burnt out. I burnt the candle both ends in the middle and a bit on the side as well. It was just like, mm-hmm. yeah, that was good. I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't go back for the world, you know, so. You learn all kinds of skills for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you turn to the dark side, then you turn to sort of looking after yourself, really. Yeah, I did. I I had a, a opportunity and a new actually change in my life where my second business, Couch to Active, that I have now, um, I was able to uh, float myself long enough to be able to get that to be able to pay for itself. I actually had another business before that uh, that's still on my LinkedIn profile that's still alive called Audio On, uh, but I wasn't able to get that one profitable in three months like my business plan had and now I look back and I think oh that was so cute I thought I'd be cash flow positive in three months you know um (laughs) good learning experience uh yeah so yep was able to turn into the passion project of uh, couch to active and that's uh I'm on my fourth year now 
up and running on it, which is pretty amazing. And at first it was like couch to active. What is this? And now it's who I am in a big way. Yeah. Well, it's quite a transition. I mean, was that transition, were you ready for it? Is it something you wanted to do? And are you happy now four years in that you made the jump? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was so ready. I've always wanted to run my own business and um, have the freedom and responsibility with that. And uh, and that's a big piece of what I just love about it is it, it does. It gives me freedom to do what I want to do and have a bigger positive impact on the world. Um, as, as opposed to when you work for clients, it's great. It's awesome. But you know, I'm doing their bidding and I'm doing one role in the bigger project that may or may not be meaningful to my life. Um, and, and so this is just so, so much more meaningful when I can have direct impact on people's lives. Uh, for me, that just feels like I'm making the world truly a better place. So, um, and you know, with COVID, it's like to have an online business when everything goes online. That was pretty great. So, yeah. You saw it coming. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. It totally is. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, take me back a little bit. I mean, what, what was the original plan way back <laughs> the mighty Pete knows it's the golden question. <laughs> uh, so I was raised believing that if you do A and B, then C will happen, followed by D, E, F, and G. And so I was one of those folks who I did really good in high school. Um, I even won the citizenship award in my high school, which is, um, I, I had forgotten about it. I found it in the memory. It was like, here we go, Lynette Sandstrom, the citizenship award. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was so me back then. <laughs> such the rule followers, such the yes ma'am, no ma'am, please and thank you. And uh, in, in the 80s, right? Um, and in my mid-20s, I started realizing that all of this doing what everybody else told me to do didn't help me really in my life, didn't make me happy. And, and part of this journey was I had told my family and my academic advisor that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And being raised very, very conservatively, my father in all the love in the world, rest his soul, said, a psychiatrist, that's 12 years of school. You'll be barefoot and pregnant with several kids and a hundred grand in debt. Like that would, I mean, that would be, you could do it, but that would be stupid. And I was like, oh. And so I went to my academic advisor in my at my high school. She essentially said the same thing. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll be a school teacher. Because then if my husband, my future husband, whom I've never met, isn't this crazy? But this is where I was. If my future husband, whom I've never met yet, dies, then I become a widow, I could be a substitute teacher at my children's school. I mean, this was legit my thinking at the time. And I look back at it now and think, wow, how in the world did I think that? How in the world did I have such a small, like, box myself in. 
So I went to go to do elementary school and I got my degree in it and I uh, started teaching and I did for six years. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't, I was good at it. I was told I was good at it. When I was, when I left, people were amazed, but I was like, these kids and parents drive me crazy. <laughs> Um, and so that was during the dot-com boom in the late uh, 1900s, which is so weird to say the late 1900s. Wow. Uh, where I got a job in corporate and um, doubled my salary and got a job uh, writing training courses for a Fortune 500 company. And so that's where all the corporation experience started. And that was a, that was a money chaser thing for me. That was me doubling my salary, me getting out of dealing with little kids and their parents and um, the crazy school system we have here. Um, and then after 20 years of that, I had been able to make some some pretty darn good money and had a little buffer and was like, all right, now I want to do what I really want to do. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, we had a whole bunch of family tragedies and stuff that grew me up really big. And I got divorced and had a sick kid and all kinds of things like that that kind of helped me see life for what it really is and get me out of that that box of who everybody else thought I should be. And so with all of that, um, it grew me up. I was able to do what I'm doing today. Yeah. What what should life really be? Oh, well, should is a very interesting word. When you say what life should be, and uh, and I preach to my uh, couch active folks that should is a word of frustration, because when you're saying should, you're saying you're not happy with where it is right now. This should be, you know, there should be no violence in the world. I should eat more vegetables. I should go to bed earlier. And I, t I tell folks, quit shouldn't all over yourself. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what life should be, if I put a should on life, is life should be individuals. Uh, well, there's some, there's some non-negotiable shoulds. We all should be kind, compassionate, and caring to one another. I believe we should follow that golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto, unto you. Those are some big shoulds, I think. But as far as your own life, I think you should have the freedom to explore and do what makes a good life for you and love the people around you. And, um, and I got to tell you, I've got to tell you, Pete, I've uh, right now am doing some caretaking for my elderly mother-in-law and um, who should be in a, should <laughs> be in a care, care home. Uh, but she's not because of COVID. So um, we're helping to caretake and just float all that this year. And I tell you, when you watch that mental decline and you watch that physical decline of somebody who's Stanford educated, incredibly brilliant, had an amazing life, I, you realize at the end, life just comes down to relationship and love. And that's really all that really matters in the end of it all. So it's been, a, that was a roundabout kind of non-answer to your answer. Good enough though? Uh, certainly enlightening, let's just say. <laughs> are, are you where you're supposed to be now? I don't know if I look at life that way. I think when 
I think I've had a time in my life where I said I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be. You know, when I taught elementary school, I knew that was not where I was supposed to be. When I had a client who sold a product that I did not believe in and I thought was actually hurting the world, I knew that was not where I was supposed to be. (laughs) Got myself out of that. Now, I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And I guess I don't really worry so much as I used to be used to about, am I where I'm supposed to be? Is there a like, you know, rainbow of happiness somewhere else that I'm missing out on because I'm not where I'm supposed to be? I don't see it that way. I see it more as if I can be in the moment and love my life now, that's really where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Do you love yourself? Like yourself? I used to. I mean, I used to not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a way easier question to answer now. Um, when I had the family, um, oh, we didn't even talk about that yet, but I talked about family tragedies. I, I had, uh, when I was realizing that A doesn't necessarily mean you go to B to C to D, right? Life isn't, life's a little more chaotic than that. Um, I would always have in the moment told you in my 20s and 30s that, of course, I love myself. Of course, I have great self-esteem. And then uh, when my marriage fell apart, and in part because we had seven people in my family die over three years. So we had um, four, all four grandparents. And then we had uh, my dad got diagnosed with cancer young And while we knew he was going to be our next funeral we'd go to for his pancreatic cancer, um, we had a sister-in-law who got hit by a car and died immediately. So here we're attending her funeral while we know we were like, wait, we thought dad's funeral was the next one. And then not long after we lost dad, we lost a cousin to cancer that just kind of came on suddenly. And so just funeral after funeral after funeral, divorce, then I lost my job. And then, you know, this baby was a really hard delivery, just all of that. When you go through all of that, it took all of that to finally land me in years of therapy. Because the choice pretty much was therapy or padded room. Take your choice. It's going to be one of the two. <laughs> Even though throughout all this time, I was still consulting in corporations. And for some reason, I could compartmentalize my home life away from my work life. And I left them very separate. And this stressful work environment was actually my escape from my real life, which is crazy. Um, And so through all those years of therapy that I'm really open about now, open book, I think everybody should do some kind of therapy in their life at some point. And I'm really happy to see that it's become more and more, uh, what do you call it, fas- fashionable to do therapy, um, where it used to be a thing of shame. Uh, through all that, I realized I really had no sense of self. And I really had no sense of who I, who I was. And I really put all my identity in people giving me praise for work I did. I was my I had one therapist who called me hyper functioning. And so it's basically just, yeah, doing all this work. So then people say, oh, great job. And like, you know, yeah, that was where I got all my self-worth from. 
And um, it wasn't until I got a hold of this ugly, ugly workbook that just like looks like the stupidest workbook um, called the Self-Esteem Workbook that, which by the way, it's an awesome book <laughs> that I worked through it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I not only do I have no self-esteem and don't love myself, I don't, I'm not even sure I know what self-esteem is. So I did years of working through that and growing through that. And then that along with years of being a single mom and learning like I was more capable, I really can be this wonderful person. I don't have to be a wallflower. I don't have to be a chameleon. And and add that on top of um, I'm remarried now to this amazing husband who just lets me be who I am, lets me be my crazy self and lets me try things out. And he's just like, you go, girl, you go, you do it. And not afraid of failures and doesn't see failures as failures. Put all that together. And yeah, I do love myself now. And I do have a great self-esteem now. See, I hesitated there. I still work on self-esteem. Um, <laughs> but um it took that whole big, long journey. And I think if you had asked me 10, 20 years ago, I would have given you an answer that I thought was correct, but I, I wouldn't have been right. Yeah. So, Can you take a compliment? Take a compliment? Mm. Oh, I thought you were about to give me one now. Well, like, you can please, have one now if you like. go yeah. right ahead. That's <laughs> <laughs> like... You're a great speaker. I, there we go. <laughs> Wolf, thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, I can now. And uh, not all, I used to just be like, oh, no, it was this, it was that, you know, but no, I totally can now. And I can give compliments and give feedback, which was the next piece is being able to give feedback to people in a loving, compassionate way. Um, that can be heard and, um, and work. So yeah, yeah, it's, you caught, you caught me at a good time, Pete. So, but it, it only took, it only took me like what, four and a half decades to get here. So <laughs> that's not bad going. <laughs> some, yeah. some people never get there. So that's consider yourself one of the lucky ones, right? Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm there, there, but you know, I'm partway there. <laughs> what about the midlife crisis? Have we had that? 30. I had that at 30. Nice. Yeah. Overachiever. I like it. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, my gosh. You're right. Oh, I'm so good. No. <laughs> no, I absolutely had my midlife crisis at 30 because that is when I had all the deaths in the family. And that um, what really triggered it was my a few things. Usually it's always a few things was my husband at the time. We were so set on not spending a dime and saving every penny for as early of a retirement as possible. Because we're going to just show all our friends we're going to retire way earlier than everybody else. And so we would literally penny pinch every penny we possibly could. That on top of all the stress and that on top of getting divorced. And then when my father passed away, I had this epiphany that I was like, oh my gosh, my dad died at 60. My mom or his mom died at early 60s and her mom all died early 60s. So I thought, oh my gosh, I'm 30. If I wait to start living until I'm 60, I'm going to be dead 
So I'm like, what am I doing? I can't, I can't just not be living. I can't just be doing the corporate grind and nothing else and not allowing myself to do any, you know, thing to really enjoy myself. And, um, and so that's when my midlife crisis came. That's when I really started thinking, what do I want in life? And, um, you know, that's when the therapy started. Uh, Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was when a lot of things happened. And then, um, that's when the marriage blew up because he's like, who are you? You know, (laughs) well, I am who I am now. So you could take it or leave it. And he left it. Um, so yeah, totally had an early midlife crisis, which makes me wonder if I'll have another one someday, but I don't know. I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. Are you you like a a seven year cycler? No, no, thank goodness. You're talking about folks who like their life blows up every seven years. Yeah, or something significant happens because theoretically we're two, two, two seven-year cycles on from thirty-ish. I, I, oh. okay. So if we're two seven-year cycles from thirty, take me to thirty-seven, thirty-eight, something. Yeah, um, thirty-seven, thirty-eight would be. I did have a significant relationship blow up. And then seven years after that, I'm in this wonderful marriage and my teenager's doing good and my business is doing good. So, I mean, I could pretend I'm in a seven-year cycle, but <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's funny so how some, seven, some people are, yeah. some people aren't. You know, it's just, it's just weird how yeah. it works. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've interviewed people who are definitely uh, like seven or 11-year cycles. Mm. It's like... Boom, boom. I know. But no, my first marriage was 12 years long. So yeah, I don't I don't know. I'll have to mm. do some math, see what kind mm. of cycle I have. Yeah. So Mini Lynn then, six, seven-year-old, what have we been looking at? You would see a cutie pie little girl who was very, very fortunately raised in a very loving, caring household. My little sister, she was mean to me, but we're, we know that. Um, <laughs> we're good friends now. Uh, my older brother, I mean, the wor- I was raised in a home where the worst thing you could do was be mean to your sibling, um, which not everybody has that. And so I remember like my sister and I, we would fight all the time. I never hit her, but sometimes she'd hit me. And I remember one time she left a palm print on my back. She slapped me so hard that you could see it. And my first reaction was to run to the bathroom. Yes, palm print. Mom, because I knew she was going to be busted for that palm print. <laughs> um, and so that I'm really, really grateful for that. I'm really grateful I was raised in a kind home. I, I'm no longer part of the religion I was raised in. And and that's become an okay thing for the family. Um and and actually a fine thing for the family. Um, and um, there was something more significant I wanted to add to that. Oh, yes. Even though I was raised in this really kind, wonderful house, um, what I didn't know till I was older was part of the reason my home and my family was so kind and hitting was not allowed and being mean was not allowed was because that wasn't how my mom was raised. So my mom actually stopped a generational cycle of family abuse. Mm. 
when it came to us. And it wasn't until my 20s when she, you know, told all of us kids, she's like, hey, I got to tell you something about grandma and grandpa. And here's, you know, who they really were. And you would think to hear, oh, my grandpa that I grew up with and all these years, like, oh, he was actually a terrible abuser. You would think I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe grandpa was. But no, when my mom shared that with us, my thought was, wow, now so much more makes sense to me. Now I know why we almost never spent the night over there. Now I know why we pretty much stayed away from grandpa. Now like, now I know why there isn't this real loving relationship between my mom and her parents like I had with mine. It was like all of a sudden, so many things made so much more sense and I felt more grounded like I was more rooted in reality and it felt safe, which is kind of a, yeah, crazy thing. So yeah, so my childhood, happy, happy, life is perfect, it's all good. You know, you do good in school, you get good grades, you do good in college, you get a good job. I mean, that's kind of what, you know, percolated and put together this whole thing of me thinking that life would be perfect if I just am perfect myself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When did, you, when did you stop being your real you? When did I? Stop being the real you. Stop being the real me. Like, like when I was younger, mm. you would say I was more authentic. And then when I oh, got older, I was- The yeah. version of you that, whether it be pleasing or whether it would be, you know, to, to comply with what was going on around you. Oh, okay. Um, when I stopped doing that, I felt like I was becoming more the real me. I felt like I was I, never before fully the real me because I was doing what people around me, the people in authority around me were, you know, you've got to be, a, you know, a pretty girl. You've got to, you know, look pretty. You've got to, you know, do all these, all the things in the 80s we taught our girls. And I think it wasn't until everything shook up and really blew up in my 30s and I went through those years of therapy that I really felt like. I could actually be more of more authentic to who I really was because that that was a big part of the work I did is there was a uh, big work part of the work I did in therapy is there's a big disconnect between who I was in the world versus who I was inside myself. And so I wasn't willing to be, um, you know, angry ever in public. I wasn't willing to ever do anything that wasn't just people pleasing and high performing. Like that's the only place I was willing to be publicly. And, um, and so, yeah, I would say it was my thirties, late thirties when I became more and more authentic and more my real self than ever. And when was, that? I mean, was that right back in your childhood? So you had, I mean, this gap was created to, to sort of please the world, please everything that's going on around you. I mean, when, I mean, have you ever had a chance in your when you were young to be the real you? I think I think I totally could have. And I I think especially when I look at my siblings, um I think I absolutely could have. But and and my mom and I we've talked about this a lot cuz she worried about me. 
She said, I was such a pleaser. She was worried that people would take advantage of me. And that was some of the work I had to do in my 30s was to figure out how to stand up for myself more, how to ask for what I want. And um, and even today, I still have to work on asking for what I want and advocating. And, and one of the things I've learned is that I'm not the best at it. And that's still some of the work I'm doing is ask, you know, asking for things and advocating for myself. So I've learned what I tell myself is I'm still working on this. So I'll just tell the person, hey, I'm advocating for myself. It may come out ugly. Please just forgive that. I'm still working on this. Um, but I think as a, I think at any point in my life, I absolutely could have been more authentic. And I really can't pinpoint out why I wasn't. And um, yeah, I think I'd have to go back to therapy again to figure that one out. So <laughs> that'll be part of my next seven-year cycle. I mean, I do find now, I mean, as you know, the true you and who you are, is that, have you completely shut that gap? Is that, are you one and the same now? I would say I'm as one and the same as any human's going to be now. I don't think there's any perfection in anything. And I think I'll always change. And the world around me will always change. And my kids are still growing up and, you know, I mean, COVID, oh my gosh, like who are we in this whole COVID thing trying to figure, because <laughs> I'm a huge extrovert. So, you know, how do I, how do I cope, um, deal, was it learned helplessness, you know, <laughs> how do I cope with all this? So, yeah, I, I think, um, I think that's a spot where there's always work to be done. What are you, what are you capable of? That's a big wide open one, huh? I think I'm, well, I go to strengths, right? But I think I'm capable of anything that I can learn and do. I mean, even now with Couch to Active, my gosh, that doesn't have anything to do with my degree, really, except I'm educating people and my degrees in education. And, uh, you know, raising a great child, even in a home that got divorced in a remarriage, that's a pretty amazing feat in and of itself. Um, yeah, I may need a week or two to think about what I'm capable of. Because uh, my first response is like, oh, well, I'm really good at learning things and picking up new tools and I can, you know, so um I'm kind of fumbling all around that one, Pete. I should write that one down and do a little more research. Mm. It's always <laughs> curious. I mean, where, you know, because you talked about being in, in a in a good place, mm-hmm. you know, but the other part of me wonders, like, where, where is the, you know, where is the line between being in a good place and being stretched and being the best potential that you can be? Ah, uh, Okay. And so when I say being in a good place, to me, that does not mean I'm not being stretched or pushed or anything. Because let me tell you, running a business in COVID, start one of the things I did was I added new products and services, and I had to learn how to set up the technology for that. And I had to bring in the resources. And in the meantime, 
you know, we our kids are still doing online school here. So we're like juggling all of that and wondering what's going to happen to my husband's business with all of that. So there's been a tremendous amount of stress, a tremendous amount of like challenges. And, and, and every time our governor here in Washington announced more lockdowns, I cry. And I'm like, oh, oh, I can't. I just, this extra, I'm too extroverted for this. I need my friends and and I have to work through it. And even with that, I still see that life and being in a good place doesn't mean it's all roses and rainbows. You know, just, it's not being happy, happy, joy, joy, you know. <laughs> Or roses and rainbows. It's wonderful. Like, you know, if I, if, if I was saying that, I would really, if I, uh, I would think I had my head up my butt, but no, no. <laughs> yeah. So no, life's still tough. Life's still a lot of things going on, but it doesn't mean it can't be overall good. Where, where do we see the best, Lynn? I mean, what's, where's your point of flow? Conversations with friends, conversations with loved ones, for sure. I love when I say I'm a big extrovert, I'm not a big extrovert. Like I have to be the center of attention and in front of everybody, like not at all. It's, I love like just yesterday, I went for a walk with a dear friend of mine and we, we talk deep. We talk about, we joke, we solve the world's problems on all of our walks, you know, um, or had, you know, friend over on the porch outside, we, I just ordered some electric blankets so we can bundle up and be warm outside and drink our wine and, and just have the most, what I call amazing, deep conversations where I really get to know someone and we're there for each other, like just really in a deep way, that's way more than the weather. And, um, and I love people. They they fascinate me. I don't I don't care. I don't care if you're weird or short or skinny or fat or hairy or bald or like whatever. I don't I seriously don't care. I just love people because they every person that I've really gotten to know, no matter how crazy or weird they are, when you get to know them, it makes total sense. It totally makes sense why they are who they are. And part of that brought me to um, New Year's resolution in 2019. Um, I'm, I'm one of those weirdos that loves my New Year's resolutions, you know, <laughs> and uh, I know I respect not everybody's like that. And some people are even like, eh, New Year's resolutions suck, you know, like, okay, that's fine. I'll respect it. But I'm I like them. And it's 2019 before I had any idea what 2020 would be all of us, right? I mean, a year ago, we had no idea. I made a resolution to spend a significant amount of time doing what I call listening to the other. So when I saw someone on social media that I thought was crazy, I mean, you know, those people like, oh, they're crazy. They're wackadoodle. They're like, oh my gosh, they're so fringe. You know, whenever that trigger came up for me, I would go to their website if they had one and I would read it. I would read their propaganda. I would sign up for their email list and get all of their stuff. If they had a podcast, I would listen to hours of their podcast. 
And at first, it darn near gave me a nervous breakdown. Um, <laughs> <it's all laughs> but after several months of it, about May or June of 2020, everything just kind of started to gel together. And I had this aha. And I realized, oh my gosh, yes, we have issues as a globe to solve. Yes, we have things that are problems that need to be addressed. But overall, we are way more aligned in agreement on life in general than the media or social media or anything would lead you to believe. And so it's unfortunate that we have this sense of these huge in the United States, especially this, or at least, I don't know, I live in the United States, so I feel like, you know, this is what I know. But in the US right now, there's this sense that we are so divided. But then I've gone through and I'm like, I listen to one fringe person and they they point the finger at the other fringy and says, they believe this or that. So I go to the other fringy to listen to what they believe. And it's not at all what they're saying. It's like, so um, anyhow, that's a, a long way of saying where I shine is I feel like I came through that with this message of hopefully hope that there is, with listening, there is a way to really find commonalities, build bridges, so then maybe some of those bigger issues can be solved. And maybe some of those bigger issues become a lot smaller than we thought they were. So it's been a, it's been a pretty incredible journey, though. Yeah. Do you listen to yourself? I, I listen to my podcast. Yes. <laughs> Do I listen to my my own advice? Your inner self. <gasps> yes. Yes, I would highly recommend the book, The Untethered Soul. Is that what it is? Untethered Spirit, Untethered Soul. You know that book? Yeah, wonderful book. Um, that book came to me um, <laughs> not long after I got divorced and I started dating. That came book came to me from a gentleman I met on a dating website. And, you know, you go through these dating websites and you can put books you've read. And I had a date with this one guy who he was a doctor and um, he said he loved this book. It changed his life. And so, of course, I ordered the book and devoured it before our first date. And so I could say I'd read it, too. And, you know, um, <laughs> um, it was an amazing, amazing book. And I've since read it more than once. And I have it in audiobook and I probably listened to it three times. But that concept of listening to yourself came alive to me during that time in my 30s. Um, do I always listen to myself? Mm, not always. But right now, I'm not as much on the hamster crazy wheel as I used to be. So I actually have time to really think and meditate and listen. Um, and I know very well that it's a luxury and a gift and an honor that I can get up and spend an hour on my couch drinking coffee before I do anything. I know, I yeah, I know. <laughs> and and I know that's only because of you know thirty years of coming to where I am today and working to architect where I am today. Um, 
But man, back when I was, you know, single mom in it, corporate job, all that, I, I, <laughs> the idea of sitting and down on the couch and drinking coffee before I went to work, like, no, <laughs> that was not even, not even a thing. So that's a long answer to, do I listen to myself? It's still a work in progress, but I have definitely gone from not listening or being aware to being hyper aware to now being mostly aware. Yeah. A lot of um, psychiatrist tendencies in there, even though the, the sort of label of psychiatry was left a long time ago, but watching people, observing people, listening to people, it's kind of like a de facto sort of doing it without the, without the tag. Yeah. 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 And I've had, I've had lots of uh, friends or even clients who are like, why aren't you a counselor? You got to get your counseling degree. Yeah. No. And, and I was on the phone with admissions offices and colleges just last week looking at master's in counseling. Could that be a thing? You know? Yeah. And, um, and then asking myself the question, do I have to have this degree or is that really what I want? Do I really want that external validation or with couch to active? Oh my gosh, I'm so impactful in people's lives and I'm so positive in people's lives and I don't, and I don't have the counseling degree. It's not counseling. It's not counseling, but, uh, it's coaching, but or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So yeah, you're kind of right there with me. A lot of, lot of thoughts around that. <laughs> mm. What's, what's the vision for Coach to Active? The vision for Couch to Active is to have um, a safe place for people to go to get back into exercise, a safe and supportive, compassionate place. Wow. I should write that down. Uh, I don't think that's my tagline or I've struggled with my tagline, safe, supportive, yeah, comfortable place for people to get back into uh, exercise regardless of what they've got going on physically or mentally. And um, and we do that, or uh, right now it's just me, but by providing the fitness classes that are that and um, and also the one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching um, online too. So the vision is... If I could take it and blow it up into a great big thingy, the vision would be to turn, change the dialogue we have around exercise and fitness and help it to be way more inclusive of everybody, wherever they are on their fitness journey. Because right now, for the most part, people think of fitness, they think join a gym, run a 5K, you know, got to be part of a sport. And all of that excludes so much of our aging population with chronic illnesses and other health issues. And so they don't, they're, they're like, where do I even begin? Where do I even start? It feels futile. So I want to provide a place where people can start realizing that couch to active is, is a real thing and it's legit. It's, yeah. There's so much there, you know, in fairness for you for for growth. And I mean, do you see how much of it is the physical side, and how much of it is just the getting started and and getting people on board? I mean, what what part is it? It's mostly mental. Mm -hmm. It's mostly mental. It's it's helping. I was just on the phone with a with a woman two days ago, and she's like, 
I get migraines so bad and I know I need to exercise and I know the migraines might, I mean, I know the the exercise might help, but I spend like most of my days in a dark room because my head hurts so bad. And so just talking through with her, like, okay, we let's redefine success here, you know, because she signed up for some of my courses, my fitness classes that are super easy fitness classes. And she's like, I can't even make it to those. Should I even be signing up, up for them? And I, and she has a, I have this membership you can buy where you get unlimited classes. And so she has that. And I said, okay, let's do this. Continue signing up for the classes you aspire to go to. And when you can't go, because your head is killing you, don't look at it as a failure. Remind yourself it's a success and celebrate it because you haven't given up on yourself. She started crying. She was like, oh my gosh, that's where I need to start. That's where, like, you're right. If I'm signing up, even if I can't go, I haven't given up. And someday I will be able to go. And and I told her, I said, these classes, like, go, go, turn the class on. Don't turn on your video and just, like, listen to the class in bed. You know, I mean, or if you can do one minute of the class, do one minute of the class. And eventually you'll do be able to do more. And she's like, oh, my gosh. So that's how the mental physical gets combined. But yeah, so much of it is just like, let go of your stereotypes of who does what kind of exercise, let go of your stereotype of what exercise is and, um, and really own what you want to do. How do you love your life? How, how can you get movement in your life in a way that actually makes you smile? And who cares how silly or weird it is? As long as you're moving, you're, you're grooving. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and then we also talk through, if they go through my program, they talk through barriers and how to break through the bear, you know, what are their barriers and what barriers can they influence, how to break through barriers, how to make peace with barriers, which is the hardest one. If there's a barrier that's here to stay, how do you make peace with it? There's silly ones like you have kids. They are a barrier to fitness. Are you going to get rid of your kids? No, of course not. <laughs> Uh, but then there's the harder ones like uh, my clients who are blind and that's not going to change. And uh, sometimes the work is making peace with that so then they can begin to think about exercise and movement as a non-sighted person. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it gets deep. It gets deep really fast. And it's crazy, the whole exercise thing, how you would think, oh, it's just exercise, but it's not, it means so much more to people. Do you think, I mean, looking back, you know, the, the listening piece almost had to happen for you, you know, for the, the you know, the, the couch to, you know, couch to fitness there, that one had to happen with the other. Does that make sense? Yep. I think it all culminated. Yeah. I think my 20 years in corporate, gave me the technical skills to build a web page, to market, to advertise, to write copy. <laughs> um, my own chronic illnesses absolutely brought me into chronic illness groups and helped me see the need out there and helped me really hear 
from individuals who really, you know, went to the grocery store and came home and then they're just in so much pain that they're going to sleep for the next day and a half, but they're excited they made it to the grocery store, but they're depressed that this is what their life is. You know, it's, that's hard, deep stuff. So I would not have been exposed to that if it weren't for my own minor, relatively minor, comparatively chronic illnesses. Um, I think the deaths in the family and the divorce humbled me in a hurry because I thought I knew it all. I got it figured out. I did good in college. I got a job. I'm doing good at that. I mean, woohoo, look at me, you know. Um, it all, I think it's just the culmination of, of all of it together for sure. You read that book, The, the Body Keeps the Score? <laughs> I'm reading it right now. I've had so many people mention it. I, if I had to wait like six weeks for it to come up on my library loan and it just got it last week. Tell me. It's no, I mean, it is uh, just, it's interesting as you talk about, you know, all the various experiences and, and, you know, things that you've been through, you know, and, and, you know, do you, you mean you talk about your chronic illnesses i mean how bad did that get for you and and what do you attribute it to the fibromyalgia definitely definitely was the stress of just the trauma of all the deaths divorce sick child like all of that absolutely um without a doubt was that and and in my healing, um, I've spent several, it really popped up in my my mid 40s, early to mid 40s, I'm 47 now. And um, in looking at food and environment and all these other things, uh, and after sleeping, one time I gave myself an experiment and I just slept and slept and slept for like three months and that helped a whole lot too. And then uh, stress, I realized stress management was like the final key. And um, so 2020 was my year of working on stress management. <laughs> and um, and now I'm working with the nutritionist to dial it in even more. And um, we're thinking after another year, I might, my fibromyalgia is way, way better than it used to be. And maybe in another six months to a year, I can get off the meds that I'm on for it because they're causing some side effects um, and um, and maybe heal. But the stress management is absolutely, I didn't used to, I didn't believe it before. I didn't think, you know, I wasn't really in tune with how stressed out I was. Um, and now that I, now that I feel like I'm, mostly fully aware of how stressed out I was. Um, yeah, I'm not ready to go back there anytime soon. And I've gained a ton of skills to uh, maintain and manage it too. And most of it is just my own darn doing, you know, booking meetings back to back and, <laughs> um, you know, letting things bother me that really are not that big of a deal. Um, a lot of work there to to help heal that. But yeah, absolutely. When they say the body keeps the score, it's kind of a, that concept. I'm excited to read the book because that concept, it just fascinates me. 
it's amazing what we put ourselves through for various reasons or whatever and you know the uh sort of everything from muscle memory to whatever else so yeah it's it's yeah. definitely it's a it's a book I'd, I'd recommend you know i think it's uh there's, there's a lot there mm-hmm. tell us what what is a what's a guilty pleasure for you then any kind of liqueur like uh or port recently i've discovered white port oh my gosh dangerous yeah so smooth so yummy I could, yeah, that's my guilty pleasure. And the crazy thing is uh, it's it's been an interesting catch-22 because the fibromyalgia, which is essentially your nervous system going out of whack a little bit, um, at the end of days, sometimes my whole body aches. I feel like I have a fever, but I don't have a fever. Um, and a glass or two of wine will make my nervous system just relax and I feel just all the pain goes away. So, um, so that's just been a, that's been an interesting journey of my healing too, of just not drinking nearly as much to help my body not have to fight the toxin of alcohol. <laughs> but, uh, but then sometimes I just have nights where I ache and, uh, it just is what it is. I have to, have to deal. So yeah, that one. Oh, oh, okay. What from one podcast road to another, I have become a true crime junkie. Oh my gosh. Do you listen to true crime podcasts at all? No, I don't. I never have, but I just have been listening to these serial killer murder mystery and they aren't gory. They aren't, they don't really go into the killings, but more about the detective and how they caught the person and, you know, all the research and reconnaissance they did. And um, yeah, that's definitely been another guilty, guilty pleasure for sure. (laughs) I listened to 10 hours on Waco, Texas last week. So which I'm was getting, it? I'm getting a little yeah. bit of a bit of a nerd in you. Is that, is that <laughs> okay? I'm also reading a book on the tyranny of statistics and how statistics are used. Yeah, yeah. There totally. we go. We found it. And I love my spreadsheets. Okay, <laughs> you're in my spreadsheet. <laughs> That's how we remembered how we met because I had it in my spreadsheet. <laughs> the geek comes out. Comes out. To oh, play. totally. Totally. Are you a bit of a control freak or where where do we sit on the scale? (laughs) I'm a total control freak. I'm a recovering control freak. In fact, my boys, I have a 20 and a 17 year old and we are opening, we celebrate Christmas. So we are opening Christmas presents and I had one package where there are two boxes and I put deliberately the one you're supposed to open first on the top of the bag and the box. Oh yeah. You're smiling already. Aren't you? I know. I know. And the one you're supposed to open next on the bottom. But then I also, it's the same thing. So I wrapped it in the same paper and then I handed it to him at the same time. And then they both started opening box number two first. And I was like, and and I go, no, 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 you're supposed to. And they look at me and I cut myself off and I was like, you know what? I'm, I actually said these words on Christmas. I'm just not going to be a control freak and let you enjoy your Christmas and open your presents however you damn want to. <laughs> and they just busted up laughing because they knew it was true. So it was really funny. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a recovering control freak. Um, and that was part of my stress management, right? <laughs> As I've learned. I know. I gotta let go. You, gotta you, let you go. can add that to the spreadsheet too. <laughs> yes. Let it go. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yes. The 11th, the first, I let it go. Exactly. <laughs> Diary entry. I just flipped the switch. Boom, done. Mm. <laughs> let it go. Push the happy button. Great. We're all good. Yeah. When uh, When's the best time to get you involved? And when's the best time to get you out of there? Get involved as just an open question in general? Yeah. Uh, okay. This is what I'm trying not to do. The best time to get me involved is if there's something I care about that other people aren't picking up the slack on. So like my mother-in-law, I dove right in and it's COVID. She needs care. I'm the corporate person. I've hired and fired hundreds of people. Well, hired hundreds of people, only fired a few. Um, and nobody else has that corporate experience. So I'm like, I come in, I get my spreadsheets, I hire a bunch of caregivers, I get it all organized, help set up the business. But then I end up just bleeding myself out and bleeding myself dry. And, um, and so I'm getting, you know, that was just this year, but I'm getting better and better at um, letting go and, and so yeah, so if something's really important, and it really needs to get done, and it, it needs to come at, at a personal sacrifice, I can do it. Um, but I'm trying to do it less and less. And the other half of your question was when to let it go? Well, so, when, when to uh, when to get you out of there? When's the... When oh, the, the best time to get me out of there. Oh, oh. Well, then I would have to admit I would ever not want to be wanted somewhere or that I should leave somewhere. <laughs> um, if I'm hovering... I could tend to hover and I've learned like with my kids, I've been learning like don't helicopter, let them make their mistakes, let them open present number two before present number one. It'll be okay. Um, their loss. <laughs> <laughs> Darn, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. I was just like, they'll figure it out. And they did. They opened number two and they're like, huh, what's that for? <laughs> but it could have been so much better. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe this was the better way because then they had to get curious and wonder, what's this for? Because, yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When to get me out of there? I would say, yeah, if I'm if I'm hovering or, and I'm this is, again, getting better at it myself, if I'm realizing I'm spread too thin. Because mm. I've learned over the years that it's like, I want to say I can do it all and be all. But I know that that's just really a dream. And it's really a fancy fairy tale, I tell myself. And that really what ends up happening, I've learned, is if I try to do it all, and it really is too much, then something is going to fall off my plate, whether it's my health or whether it's actual things that need to get done. And so a few years ago, I, I learned the concept of like, you know what I really need to do here is I need to pause and look at everything on my, what I call my metaphysical, metaphorical <laughs> kitchen table. I guess it could be a metaphysical kitchen table. I don't know. Um, look at everything on my kitchen table and decide what stays, decide ahead of time, what's gonna stay on that table and what's gonna fall off. Because if I keep everything on that table, and just go through as if I think I'm going to get it all done, things are going to fall off anyway, and I will not have chosen which ones those things are. 
So that concept has really helped me who wants to hyperperform, who wants to do it all, who's a control freak, <laughs> to say I can have more influence and control over what I actually get done versus what falls off the plate. And that's been a more uh, healthy place for me um, to be. Um, and in the meantime, we've uh, we hired somebody to do all the work I was doing for my mother-in-law. So now I'm back to just being a, get, a guest and loving her and not having to do caretaking and um, all the administration, which has been a beautiful thing. Yeah. Are you generally good at measuring yourself in terms of, you know, where your, your mental state's at or do you need to reflect off to see it? Um, I would say I'm better than the average person of identifying my mental state in part because I've done so much work. And I think in part because I have a safe environment to be honest with my mental state. I mean, I have a podcast with my husband and we talk about our mental state on the podcast. We talk about our marital state on the podcast. <laughs> my husband will be like, yeah, I'm doing great. And I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I had a total meltdown last night you had to save me from. And um, so honest about my mental state, yeah. Sometimes needing support um, to work through things. Yeah, I would say we all need support. I know that I'm not unique in that. And there's no shame in asking for help when things just feel tough. Mm. Yeah. It's always interesting how, especially, you know, for everything you've been through, some people can spot the signs a lot sooner and they know themselves some people it takes an outside influence to give them a tap on the shoulder and and be like hello hello <laughs> yeah. yeah well you know i need a tap on the shoulder sometimes because mm -hmm. especially if i get into overwhelm and uh there is in this just here with trying to manage my own business and the mo mother-in-law and and my son, who's like all these things in COVID, right, that are happening new and different. I had about three rounds of big overwhelm. And the first round was just like a meltdown. I'm not doing anything good enough. Everything's falling off the plate. Even my health is starting to have troubles again. Husband helped me through that. And he's like, you know, it's going to be okay. And I got a good night's sleep, blah, blah, blah. And at like the third round of this, I started into it. And he looks at me with a twinkle in his eye, and I can't believe this worked. But he goes, honey, I think we've been here before. And I just busted up laughing. I don't know why. It was like a flip switch to my brain. And I looked at him and I said, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm going to the bad place. And in that way, it did, him reflecting it to me. And 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 you're right, it's going to be fine tomorrow. I need to just go to sleep and then we'll deal with it tomorrow. It'll be okay. <laughs> and some of it was legit. I did need to make a transition to have somebody take this, the, uh, specifically the caretaking task for my mother-in-law. Um, and then legit, we're now in the second quarter of um, uh, online school. So all that's figured out now. And legit, we've adjusted our businesses um, for, you know, being 100% remote at home. And so like, we're through all those transitions. So there are some outside forces that have made it easier. Um, but in the moment, yeah, it's, it's a little both. Mm. Well, it's always, it's interesting, you know, how people can adjust and, and sort of, yeah, sort of 
work work in the environment around them, especially the listen at this time of great change, you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, do you do you also sort of slightly thrive on the the firefight too as well? It's always the. I used to. Mm. I used to. Yeah, in corporate, I was big on firefight. Now I thrive more on carving out time to be strategic. And um, yeah, I mean, a firefight definitely, you know, the adrenaline rushes in and it keeps you awake and alive and motivated. Um, But because of my fibromyalgia, especially, I'm trying to, it's literally called a fibro flare. So I'm trying not to have a fire flare up my fibro. Wow, there we go, fire flare up my fibro. Yeah, I'm really trying to avoid, not avoid it, but continue to learn skills to work through what would be a fire in a way that doesn't um, flare up my fibro. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've become much more happy in being uh, strategic about my businesses specifically and, and thinking, what can I do strategically? How much time do I actually have? Where am I going to spend my time as opposed to just, you know, bring in the axes and the the shovels and we're just going to grunt through and make it work one way or another, you know? Yeah. Mm. So tell me what's what's on the the bucket list or the love list for you then what's what's coming up out there ah the bucket list <laughs> well i want to travel a lot more which a little tough now um i really want my businesses now or the what couched active specifically to really succeed in a big way and and by that i mean really impacting a lot more people with the chronic illness and health issues um, and giving them hope. Uh, just There's just such a need there. I'd love to fulfill that need. And then when I think much further than that, my mind today goes to my dad who lost his life early and my aging mother-in-law who's lived this incredible life um she's so one thing i didn't mention is i'm my husband is the grandson of charles Lindbergh, the aviator who flew from new york to paris in 1927 um my husband is the uh the grandson of john Lindbergh, which is the first surviving um child of anne and charles Lindbergh. so my father-in-law is john Lindbergh, the son of charles my my grandfather-in-law is charles Lindbergh. Um, so my mother-in-law that I've talked about all along, she was she was married to um, John Lindbergh. So an amazing life, even before she met John. And um, and now that she's nearing the end of her life, even with all this amazing, incredible like stories and stuff, she really she just wants to chat with her family and her friends. She wants to eat a good meal. She wants a nice cup of tea and she wants to go to her restorative yoga class and do as much as she can. And, and it's a good day if she doesn't fall asleep halfway through the yoga class, you know? Um, so, and my father, when he was diagnosed with cancer, it was pancreatic cancer, which I have to say is one of the, if I die of cancer, that's the one I want to die of because it's terminal and you got about five months, like, and you pretty much have a good life. So so my dad at 60 was like, okay, I'm a goner. What's on my bucket list? We had that conversation with him. 
And his bucket list was so simple. Like when you were really realizing you were actually going to die, the concept of skydiving and underwater sea diving and, you know, pitching a baseball at some game, like all of a sudden you're like, that's just meaningless. I just want to love on my family. Um, so that when that question of bucket list comes up, that's really, that's what comes up for me is just remind myself that in the end, it's really loving the people in my life that really, really matters. And a, and a, and a warm house. I don't like to be cold. <laughs> <laughs> Keep me warm and let, leave me in control. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Leave me in control. I don't even have to. Oh no. Oh my gosh. If I had people to serve me and dote on me, Oh, you don't even know how many times I've come home and said, Oh man, I wish I had a staff that came in and just did everything for me all day long. <laughs> I'll have to wait for that. I could let I could let go of control if if it wasn't me having to do the work. Yeah. Hey, listen, if I came home to the house reset every day, I mean my my three little kids reset the house every day, but <laughs> you know, not in the way I want them to. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, yeah. What does leisure and pleasure look like for you then? Uh, for me, it is, my favorite is going to the beach. I live just a couple hours from the Oregon coast, a few hours from the Oregon coast. And I just love getting, renting a home with a view of the ocean. And, um, and I even love going in the winter when it's just it's the weather is wild. It's like downpour rain. Well, probably similar to Northern Ireland, actually. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> there we go. That's that's the weather. Um, but when the sun breaks, it's just so beautiful. And uh, just watching the ocean waves is so wonderful. Um, yeah. And then I like going places that are uh, that I call authentic. So uh, not Disneyland. Um <laughs> But more, our sister-in-law who's in Northern Ireland, I want to get there and visit her, spend some time out on the trails and um, just seeing the sight, seeing the view and going to the local pubs and eating the local food. That's that's my kind of leisure, pleasure, leisure, leisure, pleasure. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. good. Mm -hmm. so tell me if you were to describe then your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would that be? Ask the question again. If you were just to describe your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would it be? Oh. I would say love and compassion. Yep. Love and compassion. And understanding. Can I have three? Curiosity. Go on. Go Four. On, there you go. <laughs> now you're taking the pass. <laughs> <It's like>, uh, <laughs> stay curious. Stay curious. Because there's so much to be discovered and so much to learn just by listening. How are you with forgiveness? Average. <laughs> Do I need to pontificate on that one? <laughs> you tell me. Oh, you would be a good psychologist too. <laughs> um. Yeah. No, I would say, I would say decently, decently average. And um, time really does heal and 
processing it in therapy really helps mm. heal. And and for me, forgiveness seems like a really complicated thing because it I get stuck in that it means so many different things to so many different people. And for me, forgiveness is not giving somebody a hall pass for hurtful behavior. But for me, forgiveness is coming to a place where genuinely what hurt me doesn't hold power over me anymore. And that, for me, takes a lot of work. Mm. And uh, I'm way better at it than I used to be, for sure. Yeah. And I'm better at speaking my mind and having hard conversations. Um, I used to never speak my mind, so then I would, I would talk to myself in the car and have all those conversations with the person that I should have had with them in person. I have them with my imaginary person in the car. I used to do that all the time as a way of processing it. And um, once I got better at having difficult conversations, I, um, I, I, I did, my person in the car that I talked to kind of disappeared more. So, because I didn't have as much to process, there wasn't as much stuck. And, oh my gosh, okay, okay, see, I didn't want to talk about this, and now here I go on and on. I got to tell you, Pete, this is how I learned how to have difficult conversations. Yes, it started in the therapy couch, but it moved on to real life. <laughs> when I was in my 30s, and I started online dating, and what was that? 30s, so maybe 12 years ago. So it was still new in the US. It was match.com. That was it. I mean, there was Craigslist, but you, that was creepy. You know, you know. Listen, I and, met uh, my wife on match.com, so I'm all there. Don't worry. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I met a lot of people on match.com. Well, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I had come to a point where I, I decided that. If I met a man and he wasn't right for me, but he wanted to know, normally I, at, before at the beginning of this, I would just like end the date on a high note and like, yeah, we'll see you another time. Even though in my mind, I knew there's no way in hell I was going to see that guy ever again, you know? And so then I decided, no, I'm going to change this. I'm going to actually be honest and talk to these men face to face if I don't want another date. I'm going to actually answer questions they have. I'm going to actually give feedback. And they, I, and I said, I, and I did this really as this psychological, there we go, psychological coming out again, therapy experiment of like, what the hell do I have to lose? Nothing. So, I mean, I remember I had one date with a guy who um, lied to me after the, we, he, he said he was divorced. And then when we got on our second date, he said, okay, we, I have to tell you, we actually aren't divorced and we're, we're still working through it. And so normally I would have been like, okay, la-da-da-da-da, finish our date and then be like, no, I'm done with you. You weren't honest. But instead I looked him in the eyes and I said, I'm so sorry. That's, that one's tough for me because you, you lied. And he's like, yeah, I know I did. I'm like, I'm going to have to think about that. You know, and he's like, I, I know, I know. And I hope, you know, I'm not usually a liar. I'm not blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of the date, I'm like, hey, you seem like a really great guy, but I got to be honest with you. Give me a day or two to think about whether or not we're going to do another date be because I'm not sure about this lying thing. 
And then later I called him and I told him like, you know what? I, I, I decided I'm too early in the game here. I can't start a relationship on a lie. And he thanked me. Every single one, I had probably six guys, I had a conversation like this one. Every single one of them thanked me. Every single one of them was like, him, he was like, yeah, you're right. You really shouldn't be dating me right now. It's a mess and we're in this horrible divorce. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but as soon as the pretense of wanting to uh, impress was gone, he's like, yeah, it's, it's a total mess. We're in this big legal battle. And I was like, whoa. Um, and so it just took me having those experiences of being honest with compassion that helped me realize that people really did like feedback and it really wasn't that scary. And so um, it became more of a, a part of my life. And I don't even know what your question was, but there you go. <laughs> Do you find that people tell you stuff that is not normal? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I want to say, why do you ask that question? And I do have an answer for you. I'm just wondering with the with the, the dating experience, you know, when you sort of you go to being quite um, open with people, but obviously you're it's 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 coming across that it's said in a very constructive way. So you're you're being thanked. It's you know it's not a you stink I'm out of here end of date type of a scenario where it's correct. You know, yeah, it's generally done on a very positive level secure mm -hmm. but i'm just wondering then do you tend to find and i've i've heard instances where people actually then suddenly decide to tell you overshare probably like that to, to people overshare and, and suddenly it's like yeah this is great i'm i really wanted someone to talk to all along yes and i did not know that that was not normal until about three years ago my whole life people have told me stuff and shared stuff and, and it goes back to, I'm curious about people and I love people. And it wasn't until about three years ago that my husband and I were on vacation together, on holiday together. And he looks at me and he's like, what the heck? That waitress, like we're at a restaurant and the waitress was telling us all about her divorce and she just moved to the city and da, 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 you know, and I, and I, I was like, that's not normal. <laughs> And so I started asking around and asking other people, and I learned that actually, yes, people do share. And I did not know that wasn't normal. And I don't, I'm okay with this podcast, but I don't go around saying, hey, people tell me things, because I think that would freak people out, you know? Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of like an empath saying, I can feel what you're feeling, you know? It's like, ooh, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> Yeah, permission first, please. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. Don't read my mind. Don't read my mind. <laughs> no, it's, it is interesting. Yeah, because like some people give off certain vibes and, you know, some people, you know, you just kind of go, oh, I can tell you everything. It's like, I don't know you. So what gives you that impression? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And really, it's when I look back and reflect on like, what is that? Why do people tell me things? I think it's I'm genuinely curious and ge honestly listening and asking follow-up questions. Mm. And um, I mean, and I think you too, you're obviously really good at pulling things out and leading the witness to the next conversation. And uh, you're obviously very skilled at that too, because we've touched on a lot of things that 
I haven't thought about in a long time. So thank you for that. Mm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I think as humans, we don't always give each other time, you know, and especially with social media and everything else, it's, mm-hmm. we've never been so connected and yet so disconnected. For sure. You know, it's For like sure. crazy. It's yeah. crazy, crazy times. Yeah, totally. More lonely than ever and more ability to communicate than ever. It's just, it's pretty interesting. I hope we figure it out. I hope we... I hope we crack that nut someday in the future for sure. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Lynn, tell us where can people hunt you down, track you down, stalk you, follow you, find out more, ah, any of the yep. above? Any of the above. You know, just Google me, Lynn Lindbergh with one N, and um, I'm all over the place, couch to active.com. Um, yep. And, uh, or just find my LinkedIn profile and you'll, it's all right there too. Love it. Yeah. Lynn, have you a final message for us? Something you'd like to leave the listeners with? We're all going to die. It's going to end. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. It's like, uh, no, okay. You're right. You're right. <laughs> no, it's, I would say if there's only one message that I would leave people with, it would be to have compassion for yourself and others and be curious because the more I learn about other people and their stories and where they come from, what makes them who they are, it it becomes less of a frustration of why are they crazy and more of a fascination of like, wow, I understand and I empathize. And the more we can do that, I think the more we can, uh, quite literally solve the world's problems but Mm. it's got to start with looking in the mirror and having compassion for the person you see right there yeah start with you it's always the way Mm. yeah super Lynn, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you thank you so much for coming on thank you for being so open and sharing and spending the time with us and we wish you all the best ah thank you mighty pete it's been uh such a pleasure to meet you too and someday i'll have to get to know you a little better Indeed. Sounds like a threat or a promise. I can't decide, but (laughs) it's all good. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon, and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.